Thank you, worship team, for leading us in the songs of praise of God and uh, wonderful truth. Especially, I love uh, singing the old hymns, you know. Uh, that's always, a, always, ex- always encouraging because they are, as the, just as the hymns are timeless, they often also reflect timeless truths. Of course, our new choruses reflect timeless truths as well, uh, but it just feels more timeless when it's sung in a hymn, knowing that saints of old have sung these very same songs, you know, hundreds if, you know, some even up to thousands, a thousand years ago. Uh, so one encouragement, we sing these songs of praise. We turn our thoughts now to the book of James, James chapter 5, verse 13 through 20, as we come to our, our last passage in the book of James. Uh, we've started off in the beginning of the year studying this book teaching us about faith that works and that we would examine our hearts to see if we have a faith. Uh, is our faith in Jesus Christ, we who all profess faith in Christ, that's why we're here, I believe, uh, is our faith a faith that works? And we trust that it is a faith that works. And, and hopefully we're encouraged and we're blessed and we can praise God because we find ourselves having a faith that does work in our lives, that does manifest in, in Christ-like thinking, Christ-like words, Christ-like actions that reveal Jesus Christ in us. So turn with me to this final section, James chapter 5. And we'll look to the text this morning. James chapter 5, verse 13 to 20. The Apostle Paul and the Word of God we read. Or the Apostle James, and the word of God we read. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins... They will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. As we come to our final passage in the book of James, we've studied much about what genuine faith looks like how genuine, true faith in Christ works. We've learned that faith finds joy in the midst of trials, that all of us encounter in life various trials. But when you face trials, do you respond with joy in the face of those trials? We've learned that faith seeks wisdom in trials. Oftentimes, we try to, when we face trials, we try to figure it all out in our own strength, in our own wisdom. When God would encourage us, the first thing we ought to do is to Seek wisdom from God. Ask of Him who gives abundantly, graciously, and freely to all of us. We've learned that faith perseveres under trials. 
Many times when we're under trials, we want to run away from trials. We want to get away from trials. But James encourages us to persevere, to endure under trials. We learn also in James that faith hears and does the word of God. That as followers of Christ, we are all eager to uh, hear the word. We come here each week, we hear the word, but are we doers of the word? James Charles challenges us. We also looked at how faith shows no favoritism. That when we come into the body of Christ, when we look at people, we see each other as different. Some are dressed nicely. Some are dressed like bums. Do we treat each other the same despite how we're different? We should show no favoritism. And then we learn the the key section of the whole book, faith works. Is our faith a faith that works and shows itself in good deeds? Do we actually do good deeds? Do we show acts of kindness, acts of mercy, acts of love? For love of God is reflected in, ultimately, love for our neighbor as ourself, Jesus would teach us. We also learned in chapter 3, verse 1 to 12, that faith guards the tongue. One of the, what, one of the best ways to show, to reveal whether we love our neighbors is how we use our tongue with our neighbor. Do we speak well of our neighbors, or do we use our tongues to curse our neighbors? This is a challenge. We looked also how faith reveals wisdom from above, that if we are going to be people of God, that we're going to reflect wisdom from above, that, is, that, does not seek after, that does not seek after conflict, but that which seeks after peace and harmony. Wisdom above reflects that. We learn faith humbles oneself before the Lord. Many times we who are followers of Christ ought to be like him, who show, is the perfect example of humility. Oftentimes we're not, though, but faith is one that humbles ourselves before the Lord. We learn also that faith does not judge one's brother. Alongside with being often pride, pr- proud is that we are quick to judge one another, to condemn one another uh, by our own standards. We set ourselves up to be judged, as uh, James taught us. And then we looked at faith does not boast in one's plan. Oftentimes, pride manifests itself in boasting. Do we boast in our plans? Do we boast? Uh, oftentimes, uh, we think we're going to do this or that, and we completely neglect. What does God think? What is God's plan for us? And then we learn in chapter 5, verse 1 to 6, that faith doesn't boast in our riches either. Uh, our, God gives us riches, and yet uh, it is so easy for us to boast in them and think that because we are, have possessions, we have stuff, that it makes us better than others who have no stuff. But that's foolishness. And then lastly, we learn last week in chapter 5 or 7 and 12 that faith is patient. Uh, in the church of God, the church of Jesus Christ, we, uh, we interact with people all the time. Is our faith one that reflects patience towards others, especially faith towards others and, and toward God in the face of trials? This is really just coming back to the faith that endures in the midst of trials. But faith is patient in the midst of trials. So these are all the the kind of broad subjects, the broad instructions that James has taught us. And within each section, we've found many different unique individual commands. And I hope that even as you've looked through this list and I reflect upon the list, you probably find yourself have, having been, been guilty of one or more or maybe all of these at some time or other. I hope none of us here are saying, look at this list and say, oh, no, I don't do any of those things. I'm, I'm good. You'd be perfect. But the fact is, we'd probably, most of us here, fall short in various, various areas. And, and that's good. That means the Spirit of God has been taking His Word and been challenging us to show us areas of our lives. You know, if we were perfect, we didn't have sin, why bother coming up here and looking to God's Word? 
God's word is designed for us to reveal the sin in our lives, to reveal that we fall short, reveal that there's room to, there's more transformation to become conformed in the image of Christ that's necessary in our lives. And the convictions that you and I have faced as we looked, uh, as we've studied and looked into the book of James, it was very likely and just as likely the same convictions that the recipients of the book of James also experienced. They too found themselves guilty of all these, <laughs> these instructions, these commands. The question is how would they or how did they handle and respond to the conviction of God's word? James, in this last and final le- passage of our le- his letter, is aware, very much aware, that his readers will, will probably be convicted of sin, as well as they'll become aware of sin in others in the church. I don't think anyone here, well, I, I, you're, it's great if you could, it did, but lots of us, as we look at this passage, we'll see our own sin, but we also, the tendency is to say, whoa, yeah, to see other people's sin, too, so, oh, yeah, that brother, that sister, oh, they could use that word. How do we respond then when we find ourselves, when we find sin in our lives, as well as sin in the life of the church? So James ends this letter with an encouragement. It's an encouragement. This is meant to be encouragement. It's encouragement to those, those of us who are believers in Christ to not allow sin to go unresolved. God's going to convict us, so let's not sin. It's great that we heard the word and we said, oh, yeah, that's me. But James and God does not want us to say, well, I'm, just going, I'm okay because Christ forgave that sin. God wants us to resolve our sins, to correct our sins, to repent of our sins, confess sins. He wants us to prayerfully seek his help in resolving our sin and being restored to him. James has been teaching faith that works. And as we look to this final passage, we learn that true faith in Christ will not allow sin to go unresolved in our own personal lives, nor in the life of the church. We love God so that, therefore, we will not choose to walk, continue to walk in darkness, but rather we will desire to walk in the light as he is in the light. Instead, we'll seek then, and so we seek as believers in Christ, to resolve sin wherever we find it, in our own hearts, in the hearts of, in the, of the lives of our brothers and sisters here, with prayer and with confession. The overriding theme or the overriding, one of the overriding key ideas we find throughout this passage is this concept of prayer. And though it is a specific type of prayer that we're going to find, but it's the, you'll, all throughout this passage as we read it, we see the word pray, prayer, pray, 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 prayer in various aspects. When we find, and so as an outline for us today, when facing sin in the church, whether our own or life of the, our fellow believers in Christ, we find five motivations that encourage believers in Christ to pray. And that's what we're going to do. If you see sin, let's first start with pray, prayer. Why? Because we need God's help. We need God to help us pray. Let's look at these five motivations then this morning. Uh, <clears throat> number one. First motivation is a general principle. We are motivated to pray for restoration because prayer is for all of life. Prayer is something we should, is, is for every circumstance of our life, including when we face sin. James begins here with two, uh, with, uh, two circumstances. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. 
two circumstances, two opposite circumstances we find here. First of all, he asks, is anyone among you suffering? Now, the obvious answer is yes. In chapter 5, verse 7 to 12, he had just encouraged his readers to be patient in the midst of suffering at the hands of those wealthy landowners. They had encountered various trials related to their poverty as well as with regards to their faith. Back in chapter 1, James had instructed them to consider it all joy in the midst of those trials, that if anyone lacked wisdom in the midst of trials, he was to ask God. So similarly, James encourages those who suffer, those who experience trials, to pray. This command, he is a, this is a command. He must pray. You must pray, just as you must pray for wisdom, but we also must pray for strength. We must pray for grace to encourage, sometimes courage, to, re- to turn away from sin. We must pray that we would have commitment to follow after Christ, that we love him more than we love our sin, that we love God even when we're tempted to run away and hide in the midst of suffering. So the first circumstance is that whenever we're suffering, is anybody suffering out there? Are you facing trials? Are you facing uh, difficulties? Do you have uh, afflictions? Paul says, I'm sorry, James says, I keep saying that, Paul. James says, pray, pray. There's a second extreme circumstance. Not only is it suffering, do we pray? But he says, are you cheerful? Is anyone cheerful? Now, uh, just as uh, this word cheerful just means simply that, or things are going well. Uh, not necessarily that you feel chippery that day, but just, are you doing well? How are you doing? You say, yeah, I'm, I'm okay, I'm, I'm good. That's, uh, that's the kind of idea that, that things are going well in life. There's nothing, no major trials, no major issues. Like, I'm happy, I'm good. God has blessed me. No trials are happening. Are you cheerful? Well, when all is well in life, James says and that you ought to sing praises. That's exactly what, to sing praises to God. And sing praises even though it's in a melody and a song, isn't it also a prayer? It is a prayer, right? We're, in fact, we're, kind of, we're not only singing just now, but we're praying because we're directing our songs to God, right? Anytime we're talking to God, we're speaking to God, it's a form of prayer. So we have two commands here, two different circumstances, two different commands, two extremes. Are you, are you doing are things not well? Are you suffering? Pray to God. Are you doing well? Pray to God. But praise, praise him as well. In both cases, whether suffering or cheerful, the believer in Christ is to pray to God. The implication is, of course, that is this, that we are to be praying whether we are in one extreme or in between, in between that spectrum. Maybe you're kind of in the middle. You're going through, maybe you have a few trials, but you're not that bad. You say, I'm okay, though. Nevertheless, we ought to pray. Because prayer is for all of life. And it's, it's not just for only when you're suffering or only when you're cheerful, but at all times. We know in scriptures it says, uh, Paul writes 1 Thessalonians 5.18, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We're to always pray, giving thanks to God. In everything, uh, Philippians 4.6, By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So not only in, every things are we, are we to, in every circumstance are we to give thanks, but also in every circumstance we are to let our requests be made known to God. Prayer is a way for us, as, is, a, is a way of life for us believers. 
And so therefore, when we find ourselves facing sin, you know, then that we should also pray. And so that's prayers for all life. That's, uh, that's why James then lists a third circumstance where prayer is needed in verses 14 and 15. And this is our second motivation that we find in this text. That prayer heals the sick. Okay, prayer heals the sick. Verse 14, we read this. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Now, this particular, these particular two verses uh, have been debated as far as its, its correct interpretation among godly, godly people. And uh, there are a lot of uh, different po- potential interpretations of this passage I want to add. Uh, and so I'm going to present to you my, uh, my, my view. But I just I want you to add that uh, you might be reading in your study notes and you say, ooh, uh, that's, uh, that doesn't agree with Pastor Henry. Uh, so just want to let you know that there are different views on this, this particular section, uh, depending on your stamp. Your, uh, it really depends on how you interpret the word sick. It comes down to, well, it comes down to many things, but the primary one is how do you interpret the word sick? Who are the sick? Is anyone among you sick, James asks, the third circumstance. The question is, and there's really two main I two kind of main interpretations or two main nuances of this word. Both are allowed. Both are, you find them in Scripture. Uh, but the number one view is this. It refers to a literal. It's taken literally, literally sick. That is physically weak or sick. By the way, the word sick means, at its heart means to be weak, to be weak. So it can mean to be physically weak. Therefore, weak, weak because of generally sickness uh, is the idea. The second idea is, that this is a figurative meaning, a metaphorical or spiritual, we often say spiritually weak. So it's a weak in a figurative sense, oftentimes spiritually so, because and interpreted as that one is weak because of the maybe suffering in their life and they're not responding right to suffering. It's overwhelming them. They're not able to trust the Lord. So because of that sin or because of some other sin in their life, they become spiritually weak. And I think many of us, you ask yourself, how are you doing spiritually? We might say, well, I'm not doing so good. I feel like I'm just being defeated, living defeated a Christian life. And that's another possible, legitimate in, uh, translation uh, and interpretation of the meaning of this word. So both views have strong support, okay? And you're going to, I think if you are going to the Greek class today, you know, you can try to use your Greek and try to figure this out. Uh, it'll be hard, though. Lexically, uh, when you study the, the lexical uses, the usage of the word in the Greek in the New Testament, lexically, the physical sickness view is, is strong. Uh, that's why almost all your, our English translations will translate this word as sick as opposed to weak. Okay? They all translate sick because the predominant usage of the verb in the New Testament, as well as in every instance in the Gospels, by the way, every instance of the Gospels, it means sick, physically sick. Jesus healed the sick. Usually it would be this word. The furthermore, the mention of anointing with oil, along with this healing, we find a similar usage of this phrase anointing with oil in, in Mark 6.13. And there it is also a use of physical healing. That, so that further adds to this view of physical sick. However, 
The other view, the spiritual weak, spiritually weak view, is also pretty strong because of context. If you are in, were in our Bible study methods class, you would know that context is king. Context, context, context rules almost every interpretation of a passage. Much of the following context of this passage speaks of sin, right? We see sin all over the place. Verse 15, if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven. Verse 16, confess your sins to one another. Verse 19, if any among you strays from the truth. Verse 20, he who turns a sinner from error. And so you can imagine why godly men differ. I have, when, I, when I was in seminary, I had two professors who basically took two different views on uh, this passage. And so um, it is a difficult passage to interpret. So you can just trust me. No, you be like a Brian. Go home, study the text for yourself. But I'm going to present to you what I believe is the correct interpretation of this passage. And I believe that there's a, if you will, a third view. But it's really a combination of both views. Is it possible that we find a view here that will allow for a literal, a literal uh, lexic, the, the lexical strength of the words to stand for sickness, but also allow for the context, this context of sin? And I believe that there is, and that is a third view, is that this is a sickness, that the, those who are sick is a sickness that is a consequence of unresolved and unconfessed sin. James is speaking of debilitating sickness that is a consequence of when we do not resolve sin. When we don't deal with sin in our lives, there is going to become, God may allow for us to experience a debilitating sickness. Now, for us to kind of, to kind of to develop this idea, let's think a little bit about the whole nature of sickness and healing and such. First of all, we know that all sickness, all sickness in this world, even as well as death, is ultimately the, the, the result of the fall, right, and the curse of sin. Death did not enter the world until the fall. It was Adam because they, uh, that they, they took of the forbidden fruit, they, the curse came upon man, and from that point, to dust they shall return. So death did not come before there was sin. It's part of the curse. So even though we, may, we can understand that whatever disease, whatever sickness, whatever uh, even leading to death uh, that we experience in this life, ultimately is because there's sin in, our, in this world, it's sin in our lives, but sin in the world as well. If there was no sin in this world, there would be no death and sickness. So we understand that. However, not all sickness is the direct result of sin. So it doesn't mean like every time we are, we're sick, oh, I got a cold, oh, man, I must have sinned. God's judging me because of my sin. Uh, or it doesn't mean we have some, you know, my hair's falling out. Oh, man, a sin. Uh, I've, I got, must have committed some sin that God's judging me for. You know, whatever reason. We, some of the perfect examples of this are Job, which we looked at last week, right? Job was, it was because of Satan that Job was afflicted with boils from his head to his toe. Uh, many of you studied John chapter 9 recently. I know ETC has. The man born blind in chapter 9. Was, he was born blind because, not because of his sin, not because of his parents' sin, but because so that God might be glorified in him. So not all sickness is the direct result of sin, even as we acknowledge that sin is all a result of the fall and the curse of sin. However, there are 
there are a huge amount of evidence in the scriptures that reveal that sometimes sickness is a result of our sin, is a direct result of our sin. We first of all would be in the Old Testament. God promised to discipline his people with sickness when they sinned. When as in the giving of the law, and particularly here in Deuteronomy 28, 58 through 61, God would promise them that if they do not follow his ways, then he would afflict them with sickness and disease, and he would judge them. God would do that for the Israelites, his people. We know of King David, who wrote in Psalm 32, verse 3 to 4, of how he experienced physical wasting away and groaning day and night. Why? Because God's heavy hand was upon him. God was disciplining him when David allowed his sin to go unconfessed. That was his sin with Bathsheba. In the New Testament, Paul, we just took communion last, uh, last week, and I emphasize it for us, that Paul warns of sickness and even death when we eat the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. That's 1 Corinthians 11, 23. But particularly verse 30, for this reason many among you are weak and sick. The, by the way, that word weak is our word for sickness here. And a number sleep. That is, some die even because of taking, of allowing sin, unconfessed sin in our life, particularly when we take of communion. Uh, we can think of Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira uh, both died. They were part of the early Jerusalem church, but they lied about what they had you know, sold the property for, and God struck them down. And they, were, they died as a lesson, really, even for the early church. But there's an interesting kind of... Uh, passage in, or an event that happens in Jesus, for, with Jesus in John chapter 5. Jesus uh, by a, came across a paralytic, a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. He was lying by the pool of Bethesda, and he was, supposed to, he was lying on his mat. He was supposed to, every time when, you know, they believed that an angel came to that we can go in the pool and then uh, be healed. But this man was uh, so lame that he could not walk into the pool in time for everybody else to go before him. And so Jesus came and healed this man. He healed him, and he says, take up your mat and, and walk. And that's what the man did. He just took up his mat and started walking. You know, he was waiting for a pool, but he just needed Jesus. Anyways, so Jesus later found that same man in the temple, and he says in John chapter 5, verse 14, he's saying to this man, behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. And the implication is that the man's sickness, his debilitating disease for 38 years was because he had sin in his life. He had allowed sin to go unresolved, and God, Jesus warns him, don't sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. And that's kind of instruct, instructive, too, even that there are worse things that can happen to you than sickness if you allow sin to go unresolved in your life. God, we learn then with all these things that God, in his loving discipline, may afflict his people with sickness to bring them to repentance. God does that for his people because he loves them. He loves us. He loves you and me. And so there are times that if we do not resolve sin, if we don't confess sin, we don't repent of sin in our lives, God loves us too much to let us keep going. And he will bring about something, whether sickness or a trial or some kind of suffering, to bring us to repentance. How many times you have faced suffering and that has caused you 
especially really challenging sermon, to cause you to examine your heart. Say, what? Because the first thing is, oh, Lord, what have I done? You know, have I done something that has offended you? It's caused us to examine our hearts. To say, Lord, if I, you know, especially if we're kind of facing a, a death, death and life situation, we want to make sure we're right before God. We want to make sure we're right before him before we go before, meet our maker. And we're going to be examining our hearts and confessing sin. And Lord, because I want to be ready. I, want to be, I, want, I don't want to be ashamed when I stand before you as a child of God. And so, this, so I believe, and I believe that the, it fits not only lexically, but also fits contextually, that James is writing here about when we, he's writing all encouragement, all about faith that works. He says, and you've heard now all that I've been telling about faith that works, but don't allow yourselves to ha- keep on having a faith that doesn't work. Because if you, have, you profess faith in Christ and you allow your sin to go, keep going on, you, you keep hearing the word but not doing the word, then there's a warning to you that God may discipline you. And are you, if you find yourself in this, those situations, here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to do. You need to call the elders. You need to call for the elders so that they may pray for you, so that your sickness, and as you repent of your sin, confessing your sins to the church elders, you may experience healing as, from your sickness as well as healing from your sin. People will ask, how sick is this sickness? And I believe that just reading into the kind of the context of the wording here, it would seem that this is a sickness that is a debilitating sickness. It's a sickness where you can't go to the elders, but you have to call the elders to you. And they come and they have to pray upon you. So it seems implying, and when you see this word sick throughout Scripture, more often than not, it really does describe a, a debilitating where a guy like the paralytic is basically you're lying down, you're bedridden kind of a sickness. So it's a serious, God, when he disciplines us, will bring a serious sickness to us. He'll just knock us off our feet so that we would recognize that we completely are dependent upon him. The elders here, of course, are the godly men in the church who watch over the spiritual health of the church of Jesus Christ. Why elders? Because they are your shepherds. They are the under-shepherds who serve the chief shepherd. And just as the shepherds come and heal the herding sheep, so the the elders of the church are shepherds who come along and help you to heal from sin. These elders are to pray over the sick. So uh, presumably also it's to lead believers to confess sins. But perhaps there's also some involvement where a person may think their, their illness is because of, sick, is because of uh, sin. And so the elders and their wisdom are to help maybe evaluate that. Say, you know, oh yeah, that is a sin. I have seen that in your life. Maybe that is. And just kind of affirm and kind of walk through that. Uh, perhaps, or maybe it's perhaps that I, I was thinking too. Someone says, "Well, I'm really sick, but I'm not sure if it's sin." Elders, please come and, and help point out maybe sin in my life. Is there any sin in my life that you're aware of that I need to repent of? There's also the whole idea that there's many pages written about this anointing of oil, uh, but it's really a minor point. This anointing, what is it? Medicinal? Is it sacramental? Is it symbolic? You know, you can it can be any one of those three, but. I believe that it's, it's probably more symbolic. Anointing is from the Old Testament. It's a picture of consecration. They would often uh, anoint uh, kings, people, men who would become kings. So the no- idea of anointing is, has the idea of consecration. I think that would be the best idea here. It's that as the elders anoint someone with oil, um, it is a reminder to the sick that he or she belongs to the Lord, that you're consecrated, set apart for God. 
when we sin, we reveal our, that we think that we live for ourselves. But when we repent and we turn in obedience, we come to realize that, no, we are to live for God. I belong to him. We're to live holy lives in the name of the Lord. This prayer also, we notice in the text, is to be offered by faith or offered in faith. It's literally just a prayer of faith. Like James chapter 1, verse 6, this prayer must be asked in faith and without any doubting that it, we believe. It is a faith that believes that the Lord forgives sin. That's, that's the first part, that, that when a person comes to repentance, it must acknowledge that God forgives sins, that Jesus can heal as well from our sickness, and the Lord will heal this sickness if it is a result of sin. Now, I know that sometimes faith healers will use this verse to imply that a person will uh, not experience healing because they lack faith. And, and that would be incorrect. For, oh, the whole idea of faith healing is, is, uh, is even incorrect. For even if, if, this, if, that, if, this, if that was their case here, if that was true, then we wonder, what would, what would that do for, with Paul's prayer when he prayed three times that God would remove his thorn in the flesh? But yet God never removed it. Was Paul lacking in faith? I don't think so. Rather, the point of faith that prayer must be offered in faith is that prayer involves and always requires a faith and trust in God. And when we come to God, when we pray to him, it's always got to be in faith. He says, well, I'm just going to try and see what happens. No, that's not faith. Faith is, God, you've always been true to your word. And I know that you forgive sins. And I'm coming to you, and I'm asking for forgiveness of sins. And if this sickness that I'm experiencing is because of my sin, Lord, because we, we don't know for sure. We can't, we don't have that 100%. If this is because I have faith that you will heal. But if it's not because of that sin, then, Lord, I know that I have faith in you still, that you're going to give me grace and strength to even endure through my trial. So as a result of the prayer of the elders, and presumably including the prayer of the one who is sick, the sick person is then healed, will experience healing. Prayer heals the sick. There's kind of a double meaning there even, right? With, uh, we know that there's two meanings when we talk about healing the sick, not only that of healing physically the sick, but here as well, healing the spiritually sick. And that we find that kind of emphasized by the phrase, if he has committed sins. If he has committed any sins, they will be forgiven him at the end of verse, uh, verse 15. This presumes that there will be confession of sins, right? Before there can be any forgiveness of sins, there has to be confession. We know this from 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Even though we see the elders coming to pray for one who is sick, it's not the elders who have the power to forgive. The Catholic Church actually uses this and, and, and teaches how their priests, or you know, you don't have to go confess to your priests so that you can, you know, experience forgiveness of sins. Only God forgives sins. Therefore, really our prayer, even the one who is sick, as well as the elders, when our prayer is all directed to God, because God forgives. And when sin gets out so out of control that God disciplines you with sickness or an illness, then the elders must be called so they can lead you through repentance and confession for forgiveness and healing. And the seriousness of all this, and you say, wow, this is crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. It is crazy when we allow sin to go 
in, in our lives when yet, when we yet we believe and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins? How can we on one hand say, I believe Jesus Christ died for my sins, and then just to go on living in sin? That's crazy. That makes no sense. But God, who is a loving Father, comes to discipline us just as our fathers, earthly fathers disciplined us when we, when we strayed. That makes sense. That makes sense. That's what God, a loving Father, does to bring us to repentance. And the seriousness of all this should serve as a motivation for us to not allow sin to go unresolved in our lives. And so thus, James, in the next verse, in verse 16, expands this exhortation to prayerfully resolve sin to the whole congregation. It's not just elders that are involved, but he encourages the whole congregation to be involved in prayer. Prayer is commanded of all believers, we find in verse 16. Therefore, so here's the, therefore, here's the, here's where the application, this is the, the heart of his passage. This is what he wants, James wants us to do. This is what God wants us to do as we're responding to this. We may not be elders. We may not be sick uh, to the point of uh, sin, sinning, to the point of sickness. But here's what Paul, James, and God wants us to do. Therefore, verse 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Paul instructs the whole church to regularly confess their sins to one another. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that we must confess our, our secret sins to everyone in the church, but rather when we sin against one another, which we sometimes do, when you sin against a brother or sister, we should confess our sin to them. We should ask for their forgiveness. And along with confessing our sins to one another, James also instructs the church to pray for one another. Every time when we confess our sins and we ask for forgiveness and we offer forgiveness in response, there ought to be prayer. We should close with, you know, when the last time someone you had a conflict, you, you asked for forgiveness or, or you gave forgiveness, did you end with prayer? Because I think that would, and that's, that's important. It brings healing to the broken relationship that you had. Because why? Because you invite God into the equation, if you will. Many of us are husbands and wives and how many times have we gotten into conflicts and, and, uh, and hopefully you've not built the bad habit of, of just having conflicts and then kind of letting it boil over and not doing anything about it. But that when we resolve our conflicts, when you confess sins, when you ask for forgiveness, and when you, offer for, when you give forgiveness in turn, that as a husband and wife, we, we go before the Lord in prayer. We ask God to forgive us. And we pray that, that God would help us to love one another better, to love one another more. And, this is all, and that, when we do that, when we pray as husband and wives, what does it do? It brings us closer to God. And, and honestly, it's a test of our forgiveness, right? Because if you're still, well, you might still feel angry. But if you're not willing to pray with uh, your spouse, you know, after you've kind of said, I'll forgive you. I don't want to pray with you, then maybe you've not quite forgiven yet, right? That kind of reveals that kind of heart. That's why prayer is so important. I mean, it's a very practical test. Am I willing to pray for this with my, this person who has offended me? If you're not willing to pray with them, then maybe you have bitterness still. Of course, you could pray with them and still have bitterness, but uh, you'd be fake. But practically speaking, this is a very important, not only in our marriages, but it's, it's completely very necessary in the body of Christ. 
We should be praying with one another. Whenever you sin against someone and someone sins against you and you, and you get rid, resolve that sin, pray with one another. That's just proud. That's what James says. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Pray for healing. Pray for forgiveness. Pray that you would, would love one another more and love God more. As a church, we are to regularly practice confessing our sins and praying for one another because for in it reveals the spirit of forgiveness among us. And that's real important. We need to have the spirit of forgiveness because there is no forgiveness of sins if we ourselves are not willing to forgive others of sins. We think of Jesus in Matthew 6, 12, teaching us to pray, forgive us, Heavenly Father. We ask God, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors, right? That's important. There's a, God's not gonna forgive. We can't, shouldn't expect any forgiveness if we're not willing to forgive others. Ultimately, forgiveness of sins whether ours or sins of others, is possible only because of Christ. This whole passage speaks about healing, but 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself, Christ himself, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. That's a quote from Isaiah 53. In the song that we sung even this morning, and this is speaking not just of physical healing, but in the context of 1 Peter, in Isaiah 53, and in our passage today, even this healing that's talking about has, is really a, is a spiritual healing. It's the healing from sin. This whole prayer for one another can be reflected in many different ways, not only for forgiveness, but we can also pray for those who, we should also pray for one another just to be sanctified praying for the body of Christ. Pray for one another that we would walk in holiness. We might not be aware of any general sins, but we should always be praying for one another. We pray for ourselves, right? That, Lord, help me to be more like Christ. We should pray for the body of Christ, too. I'll pray for Mike to be more like Christ, you know? Pray for Tim. I'll pray for him. That he would grow and become more like Christ. Not necessarily that there's any sin in their lives, I see. But if I love them, I should pray. That's, that's the greatest good, right? That I should see them growing in Christ-likeness. Pray for one another. Uh, maybe you do see someone in sin, but you, and you're not yet ready, not sure, should I approve them? Should I do anything? Maybe they're aware of it. Well, pray for them. Pray that God would bring, maybe someone's completely walked away from God, Christ, completely fallen away. Well, pray for them to come back to the Lord. They once professed faith in Christ, but mainly don't. Well, pray for them. Maybe, and is that faith genuine? Was, well, is that genuine or not? Well, let's pray for them. Maybe let's pray for them to, to come back to the Lord. That's the kind of prayer we should have for one another. It's a loving prayer. So James ends then, verse 16, with a saying that encourages us to pray, that the effective prayer, when we pray for one another, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much, which then leads us to our fourth motivation to pray. And that prayer is effective and powerful. Prayer is effective and powerful, verse 17, 18. And we read here that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. You know, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the story of Elijah, but if you're not very familiar with your Old Testament stories, then this, this kind of, these two verses, to me, seem a bit odd. And we ask ourselves, what does Elijah, and he's a, we know he's a prophet, perhaps you know he's a prophet, what does Elijah praying about rain have anything to do with praying for a sinning brother or, or sister in Christ? The reason, what it has to do is, when we understand the story behind it, is that because Elijah's prayer resulted in the restoration of sinning Israel. The story is found for us in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 18. It's a, it's a beautiful story. It's one of my 
probably, I think if, you're, if you grew up in the church, this is probably one of those stories you remember, right? No? Okay. I don't know. I didn't grow up in the church, so I don't know. I never heard the story until I was an adult. But it was, it was like, oh, awesome, this story. But perhaps you don't know the story. Let me tell you the story. It's a fun story. First Kings 17, verse 8 to 18. Uh, in those days, King Ahab was king of Israel. King Ahab, any king with the letter A, Ahab, Ahaz, all bad kings, okay? He was one of the worst. He was the worst of the kings of Israel. And he, he was so bad, he, he, he married this woman named Jezebel, who was also equally evil. And together, King Ahab led the nation to worship Baal, the god of Baal, and the, the Asherah. It's called the Asherah, but it seems like these were maybe poles of fertility or something. So Asherah, plural, uh, Baal and Asherah. So he... When any leader of a nation worships and creates all these, all these uh, temples and idols, he leads this nation astray. And God, uh, in the word of God, describes him as, as that he had done more evil than all the kings before him. That's how evil King Ahab was. Okay. So uh, Elijah ministered during this time. And God raised up Elijah, Elijah to challenge and to defeat or to re- bring Israel to restoration from their sin. So the story goes is that Elijah, directed by God, prayed for a drought upon Israel as a, as a judgment for their sins. So for three and a half, and, the, and there was no rain. There was a drought. Uh, <laughs> we all know about droughts. Uh, for three and a half years, I'm not saying about, it's anything that has to do with judgment, but there was, there was no rain on the land. And it culminated then, after three and a half years, it culminates in this well-known story of Elijah's challenge to the prophets of Baal, the 450 prophets of Baal. He comes, he goes, shows up to Ahab. Uh, there's a neat little sub-story about a guy named Obadiah, by the way, in that text as well. But anyways, Elijah goes to challenge Ahab and says, you call your 450 prophets of Baal, call all the nation of Israel, and meet me at Mount Carmel. Uh, so, he says, so they meet at Mount Carmel. He then says, okay, prepare two oxen. So two different oxen are prepared, prepared for sacrifice. And he challenges the prophets of Baal. All 450 of them says, all right, call upon your God and that he would consume your oxen with fire. Of course, and he, so they start doing that and they chant, they pray, whatever they do. They start cutting themselves. They bleed for the, you know, as part of their prayer. And, of course, nothing, nothing happens because Baal's a false god. No, the, the oxen remains there. And so what does Elijah do? So after they're kind of done, <laughs> Elijah kind of mocks them too in, in the process. But then he prays and he calls out to God. And what does he call about to God? He prays in 1 Kings 18.37. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their heart back again. Following Elijah's prayer, fire from heaven comes down, consumes the oxen, consumes the the stones, altars, the stones that were there, the dust in the ground. And then, by the way, there's a whole story about water there, too. It was really neat. But anyways, the water is all gone. And immediately, everybody knows who's God at that point. Uh, The whole nation turns back to God. God, Elijah leads them to say, kill all the prophets of Baal. And they kill the prophets of Baal. And they, as a nation, Israel returns and is restored to the Lord. Shortly after that victory, it began to rain again. And there's a story about that in this verse. So read that. It's a great, great story uh, to read, 1 Kings 17 18. But Elijah's prayer is an example of how a righteous man can pray for the restoration of a people and God delights is glorified in answering those prayers. 
Elijah's prayer was not heard because he was any special man. The pastor tells us that he was just a man like us, just like you and me. He was a regular human being. He probably wrestled with sin just like you and me. He did. He had, but yet, because he was a righteous man who, who was devoted to God, God used and answered his prayers to bring a nation to repentance. In the same way, God wants to use you and answer our prayers to bring our fellow believers caught up in sin to return to him. Elijah's example. Well, this uh, leads us to our final example, and I'm running out of time, but we'll just cover it real quickly. Prayer saves sinners. Prayer saves sinners. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth. So this is kind of James' summary. And one turns him back. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You know, I'll tell you what. I'm going to leave this whole, I'm going to make this, expand this into a message for next week. So uh, let's just know that God saves sinners. And as we pray, uh, we're going to learn, we're going to see that come out next week. Let's close in prayer as we, as we have to go. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we pray that we would be a people who do not allow sin to go unresolved in our lives. We see the seriousness of sin. We see how you, because of your indiscipline, will will even bring about sickness and, and sometimes even death to discipline your people. Father, we don't want to be under your hand of discipline. We want to walk in holiness. We want to live lives that please you. So, so Lord, cause us to be men and women who pray continually before you, who confess sins to you and confess sins to one another regularly throughout our lives. Help us to be men and women prayerful, that we pray that you would that we would not allow sin to go on. And Father, help us to pray for one another that, we, that our brothers and sisters would not allow sin to go unresolved so that we as a body of Christ, as a family, would honor you, would be pleasing to you. For we remember why Christ came, that Christ came to gave, and gave himself so that we who are caught up in sin might be healed, might be saved. Lord, we thank you. For Christ, and we pray that because of who Christ is, because of our, our, our faith in Him, help us to be a men and women who, who walk in holiness and live lives of confession and prayer. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.